0: Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com.
1: Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are
0: contrary to the opinions offered. My guest this week is Mark Dow. Mark started his career as an economist with the U.S. Treasury and the IMF before he joined Wall Street. Today, he is the founder of Behavioral Macro and manages money, combining his skill sets as a trader and an economist. In this discussion, we talked about why economists are usually bad investors how Mark approaches markets, and covers some provocative ideas, including how quantitative easing and tightening have little effect on the market, and why Mark's not as worried about the US debt. Please enjoy this great conversation with Mark Dow. Mark, thank you for doing this. I joked the last time we spoke that I could do this more than once, and we're going to because I messed up. So let's get going. (laughs) You've said that economists are bad traders and terrible investors. I thought it would be a fun place to start just because you've had such an incredible career working at so many places and you're a great trader and investor. But what is it about economists specifically in your life that makes them bad traders and bad investors?
1: Well, I should confess up front that, I mean, that was my career path. I was an (laughs) economist, Treasury department at the IMF, pretty hardcore policy economist. But just the mindset of an economist particularly back then when I studied and had my formative years, we were kind of pretty much in rational expectations mode and didn't really have behavioral finance and behavioral economics and all these things. People assumed that man was a rational maximizer and that markets were efficient and all those kinds of things. And I was always a little skeptical of that even when I was studying, but I became much more skeptical of it as I worked as an economist and then even much more so when I started working in markets. But that economist mindset tells you that if you like something at the price of 50, you're really going to like it at the price of 30. And sometimes you're wrong. And all you have to do is be wrong once. And it's an overall portfolio positioning, and you're really committed to it. And you're wiped out. It's that kind of guy who buys a stock, and it goes down a lot, and he doubles down. It goes down more. He doubles down again. And pretty soon, well, we know how it ends. So that mindset doesn't work. It's ironic, but that old saying in markets that nothing brings out the buyer's Like higher prices. That's really how markets tend to work a little bit more. The psychology is a much more dominant factor, particularly over the shorter terms than the fundamentals.
0: What did you, as you transition from economists at places like the Treasury and IMF, where you're thinking about decisions in a much more macro standpoint, to sitting with traders, what did you think about how traders think about the market and how little or how much they factor in the view of what an economist might think.
1: A lot of times, traders fool themselves. They believe they're following the fundamentals, but they're really just following a narrative. And I learned pretty quickly that these guys didn't really understand anything about how the Fed works or how policy works or how macroeconomic works, but they were making money. So I had to ask myself, how is it that they understand economics so poorly? Because even when they were right, they often gave bad explanations for what was happening. I said, how could that possibly work? And I started studying things like technical analysis and momentum strategies to try and figure it out. And right around the same time, Richard Taylor came out with the first behavioral finance book that I ran into called The Winner's Curse. It was an anthology of a bunch of little, basically, academic papers. And that was an eye-opener for me. So I kind of put all these things together and learned risk management, learned how to read chart patterns better, and I could kind of square the circle. Now, it's really useful to be an economist occasionally from time to time, but you have to know when to pull that off the shelf and use it and when to leave it up on the shelf. It's useful less often, I think, than most people believe. Most of the time, we're just talking ourselves into narratives that either fit our priors or fit the price action or some combination of both.
0: How do you think about squaring that circle or maybe an example of it? Because I know that there are times where you've made a trade and it's gone your way, or, or you have to explain it and you have a hard time, or The opposite, people ask you like, why are you doing what you're doing? And it's hard to tell them that you don't have a reason or you don't have a view at that given point in time, even though that might be what real people who are trading real risk actually feel. How do you find a way to get in sync with the markets and say, okay, this is what I think and now this is how I'm positioning?
1: The way I approach markets in general is, I look for patterns. I look for price patterns that say something is bottoming or something is topping or something looks like it's going to do something. And then I kind of work back into, okay, what's driving the stock right now? What are the drivers? What is it correlated to? How stable are those correlations? And then is the narrative driving it now likely to change? And so whether it's because of Federal Reserve policy or because of fiscal policy or because something in the sector or because China, you ask yourself, is there something plausible on the horizon that could switch that would make this pattern that looks like it's about to break out or what have you, realize that breakout? So that's kind of how I look at it. And I found that good risk management and and pattern recognition and technical analysis really helps you with that risk management more than anything else. It's not just lines on a chart, can be a little bit arbitrary and there is some art to the science for sure, but it's a discipline on yourself that helps you manage risk and helps you recognize quickly when you're wrong. So you look for these patterns and then you look for catalysts in the narrative that would validate those patterns, and then you basically uh, try and ride them. So I explain, based on the chart pattern and the correlations, this is what I think is likely to happen. And it seems plausible to me if these things that the markets are talking about right now are if these things change. So you often find with market narratives that there's a pendular swing between one extreme and the other. If you can kind of spot when one narrative is petering out and the pendulum is about to swing back the other direction with a new narrative, get that to line up with patterns and correlations, you can often get good trades. So I try and explain that now. It was harder in my when I was a institutional money manager because institutional money managers, a lot of what they sell is fundamental research because no one wants to go out and tell clients we're really good at recognizing narratives and patterns and behavioral phenomena because everybody at some level thinks they can do that. But if you come out and say, well, we're seven levels deep in analysis on Boeing and we get this and we believe that and no one can really match that. And that's what asset managers tend to sell. So when you're in that environment, guys kind of believe their own press clippings, believe their own stuff. And you have to do some defensive research and people aren't always comfortable with the analysis. Well, the narrative's about to swing and the pattern suggests the particular stock or sector is coiled. So it's a little tougher sell, but as I've gained experience and I've understood these things better and put myself in a position where I don't have to make these arguments to other people, it's a lot easier.
0: I appreciate you making these arguments here. The notion of the narratives, once that I want to get into was the Fed. Since 2008, it feels like the Fed was a topic of discussion. It seems to come and go and be more important to people. And it seems to be one of the central narratives that people go to. I'm curious on your view, you've talked in the past about the Fed might not have as much control as people give it credit for, but it sure gets a lot of the headlines as if it does have some... Complete control over which way the markets go every day.
1: Yeah. Well, first thing, it helps with content production. There are a lot of CNBC and Bloomberg and a lot of people who produce content for a living. They need to say something. So the Fed is kind of the explanation of last resort, sometimes the first resort, but you always can point to something the Fed did and make a plausible argument that that's what's driving things. The second is when people are wrong, it's much easier to say, no, listen, I would have been right in my bearish call, but the Fed cheated. They printed money or they did this. Even now, over the course of this year, as the Fed has shrunk its balance sheet and raised the interest rates by 500 basis points, people are trying to argue, well, this component of the balance sheet is changing, whether it's the treasury general account or the reverse repo facility or whatever it happens to be, they want to say this is liquidity driven because in a sense, that exculpates their fundamental analysis that didn't play out. So it creates a lot of emphasis on it. But the big story this year, and the one I've been talking about on the behavioral macro a lot, my subscription Twitter feed, is monetary policy didn't turn out to be as powerful as everyone thought. And that's where you made your money. And there are three main reasons why monetary policy hasn't been as powerful as people thought. There's the behavioral reason, the secular reason, and the cyclical reason. Just from a cyclical standpoint, we kind of know the story by now. We didn't a year ago And I got a lot of pushback on Twitter when I was talking about it, but now I think everyone has recognized that the initial conditions matter a lot. The quality of the balance sheets in the household sector and the corporate sector, and in particular the financial sector, were in much better shape than they were the GFC, which is kind of the most recent memory people have, right? So people have kind of been waiting for us to cyclically reproduce that cascading, deleveraging process that we had back then, because that's our PTSD that's in our memory, but being initial conditions were a lot better and therefore it didn't happen. And recessions tend to happen when it's about speed, much more than level. So if you can deleverage, so basically recessions happen when people get too far out over their skis taking risks because they got overly optimistic. And then for some reason, people say, oh wait, I'm really out over my skis now and things may not be playing out exactly what I thought. And they need to retrench. So if they're really out of their skis, they have to cut back on their investments rapidly. They have to fire people rapidly. Households have to tighten their budgets. Financial entities have to sell assets. All these things happen at once. And when they happen at once, they become self-reinforcing. So if you go from unemployment of three to unemployment of six in two months, it panics people and leads to more layoffs at a faster rate. People go further and they they don't feel like they have the time or the luxury. And then the same thing when they're reducing the average on their balance sheets or households cut back on their budget, it happens fast. And then demand is cut back and then more people need to be laid off and it feeds on itself. It's a self-reinforcing process until it burns out. If you go from 3% unemployment to 6% unemployment over two years, then it's a more orderly process and you don't get the fire sales and you don't get the panics. That self-reinforcing feedback loop is a lot weaker lot less likely to get into recession. So that's kind of how I look at this. And since our initial conditions were pretty strong, I didn't think getting into one of those really aggressive feedback loops was very likely. The secular reason is the Fed controls a lot less of money supply, if you want to call it that, than it used to. Over the past 30 years, we've had global financialization, global financial deepening, however you want to refer to it. And way back in the day, basically the monetary system was the Fed and banks. So the banks would issue credit and give you a deposit on the other side. So they would issue the money in the form of deposits into existence. That was the primary form of money creation, not the Fed, but the banks. And the Fed supervised this process. They wanted to make sure that the banks were staying within regulatory parameters. and They also you know, they had other objectives that they needed to fill. What's happened over the past 30 years, 40 years, is we've had an explosion of things like repo, euro dollars if you want to call them shadow banks or what have you these guys also create money when you do a repo you're basically liquefying an asset you're taking an asset on your books and you're making it liquid by borrowing against it and you take that money and you spend it that's money creation euro dollars the same thing fed does not control these processes not nearly as much as it controlled the system back when it was just kind of the fed and banks. So a lot more of the system is beyond the reach of the Fed. And you followed me at all on Twitter, you know, that the price incentives using the interest rate is a really, really blunt tool, right? It doesn't always work that well. And great examples of this are we had the biggest, or at least the highest valuations in the stock market in my lifetime, probably ever, in 1999 and 2000, in the dot-com bubble, when the Fed Funds rate was 5% and uh, 10-year was 7% and we couldn't even spell QE. And we had the nastiest vintages of mortgages extended 2005, 2006, 2007, when the Fed funds rate was also around 5% and we didn't have QE. So not as interest rate sensitive as people think, because if you think you're going to make 200% in a year or 300% over five years, whatever it happens to be, the difference between borrowing at 3% and 6%, it's the same number for you. And that's what happens. Uh, And also when people are very fearful, they become price insensitive too. So just raising the interest rate, unless you go to really, really high levels, obviously, like Paul Volcker did, within reasonable levels, it just doesn't turn the dial that much on lending. Lehman had 33 turns of leverage when the Fed funds rate was at five. From a secular standpoint, the Fed just doesn't control the money creation process nearly as much as it used to. And then behaviorally, we're all kind of conditioned to think that lower interest rates and higher interest rates have a really big effect. So we were kind of bracing for it. So everyone saw the Fed raise rates aggressively and that led people to say, okay, well, recession's coming for sure. And we kind of had a precession where everybody saw the rates going up. They expected a recession was gonna come and but it wasn't coming, but they started little by little paring back, and investing a little bit less, hiring a little bit less, we saw that the back orders for labor declined, all that kind of stuff. So ultimately, that means people are less out over their skis as the process plays out. So you're kind of deleveraging in a gradual sense. So we were kind of braced for it, because people believe deeply that that's what would happen. And then it didn't happen.
0: The way you think about the world, it feels clear. I think that for other people, it kind of breaks their brain a little bit, that When you say in your example of the monetary policy of unemployment going from three to 6% and the difference is if it happens fast or slow. If you had told people in advance, I think this is always such a fun thing about how hard markets are, how humbling they are. The Fed's gonna raise rates. This is what's gonna happen. Many people assumed this would be disastrous, it would cause a recession, the housing market would break, like all these bad things would happen. And here we are coming into the end of 23. And I think every asset class is up in the face of that. And so that kind of breaks people's brains. Why do we get that so wrong?
1: Well, I think it's some of the reasons I was just talking about people overestimate the power of monetary policy. They thought the inflation that we had was much more monetary than well, it wasn't monetary at all. It was almost entirely COVID with some fiscal, but people, they have this... We were trained. you know. Milton Friedman said that kind of mindset. People think the high-powered money and the loanable funds model, none of which really worked that way. Like I said, banks issue money into circulation via deposits. That's how the bulk of money gets created. In exceptional circumstances, the Fed can expand and contract its balance sheet because there's a demand for liquidity. So when everyone wants to deleverage, banks need a lot of dollars for settlement. They need to settle with each other. So the demand goes up, a lot like Back in the day when we were more agrarian agrarian economy and the Fed around harvest time had to produce big boxes of money and send them out to the, the hinterland so that transactions could get done. The Fed provides the elasticity in the monetary system for rapid expansion and contraction of demand for cash. That's kind of their role. And the banks are supposed to issue the dollars into circulation via credit. Most people don't get that. Once you get it, once you understand endogenous credit, then things make a lot more sense to you. But the wrong model has been drilled into people's heads so thoroughly, and it makes so much intuitive sense to people, even though it's wrong, that it's hard for people to get past it.
0: So if people aren't looking at, if they're looking at the wrong way, when you get something like quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, this idea that the Fed could impact the market and even more and more powerful. The irony is what you're saying is so non-consensus, which is why I love it, that coming out of 2008, it was the Fed was even more powerful than they've ever been before and that they have this implication on the market. So if the QE isn't really what everyone thinks it is, is that because it's really just moving money between the banks and the Fed?
1: Yeah, basically. I mean, the way the mechanics work and people call it printing money. And I think that leads to a lazy thought process because some people kind of take it literally unless you press them and go, well, it's not, not literally printing money, but really it's just an asset swap. So Think about it in the simplest way possible. You have a 60-40 portfolio. Just to make it simple, your 60 is in an S&P ETF and your 40 is in T-bills, okay? So you got your risk money, your 60, and your risk-free money, your ballast as it were. So the Fed comes in and they buy all your T-bills and they give you a deposit at the Fed, which yields roughly the same thing. Are you gonna change your 60-40 allocation because of that? Are you gonna go out and buy Tesla stock with that money? Not unless something else changes in your mind and you think you need to take more risk, which is possible, but it's a totally separate decision. But that's what really happens. The Fed liquefies the system and allows for settlements to take place amongst themselves. Now, the way QE is supposed to work, in theory, and I think a lot of the people who put it in place way back when, if they were to review what happened now, they would say, okay, it didn't hurt, but it was a lot less powerful than we thought it might be. It's supposed to work in two ways. One is what they call the portfolio rebalancing effect. And that is, The Fed buys bonds, takes them out of circulation. The people who own those bonds say, I should probably replace that duration in my portfolio, so maybe I'll buy some government-backed mortgages, same risk temperature more or less, but it's a little bit, just a hair out the risk spectrum. And some guys might say, well, yeah, I'll buy some high-grade debt, some high-quality corporate debt, a little bit further out the risk spectrum. But you also have to keep in mind that most of the people from whom the Fed is buying these bonds it's not in their mandate to go out and buy equities, mm-hmm. right? They're buying it from like PIMCO, and they're buying it from Fidelity bond funds, and they're buying it from these guys that have a very clear mandate and they don't buy equities. So that kind of effect is not that strong, first of all. I mean, it's kind of there, but it's indistinguishable from the natural process of people moving out the risk spectrum with time. And we can talk about that later because it's a super important point, how risk appetite works over the course of a cycle. This marginal effect is really indistinguishable from this bigger effect, I think, of people over time moving out the risk spectrum during a cycle until we get to that point where we are too far out over their skis and we have to bring it back. The second channel is the idea that by taking duration out of the system, it will lower the yields on bonds and that will stimulate lending and things like that. But as I like to say, you can lead a banker to liquidity, but you can't make them lend. You need the risk appetite for people to lend. And it's not even clear how much QE lowered interest rates, because we know from a flow standpoint, during QE1, QE2, QE3, every time these things got rolled out and the Fed was buying bonds, yields were going higher. And they were going higher primarily because of the placebo effect. People believed that the Fed intervening was protecting the downside on the economy, and therefore they said, okay, I'm selling bonds and I'm buying equities. That behavioral effect based on perceived change in economic outlook was much more powerful than the mechanistic buying from QE. And this is why I was saying back in September, I said, as soon as we get a whiff of slowdown in the economy and inflation cools off, all this talk about supply and fiscal unsustainability is just going to disappear, which is exactly what happened. So it's not that these effects don't matter, it's they get swamped by changes in demand, triggered by changes in the economic outlook, our perception of growth. So from a flow perspective, it didn't work. In fact, it worked the other way. yields tended to go higher when the Fed did QE. So does it work from a stock perspective? If they buy enough bonds and take them out of circulation, it drives interest rates down, maybe a little bit. But it's really hard to say, look at what's happened now. We've, you know, the Fed balance sheet is down by 1.3 trillion. So whatever people say about repos or the TGA, The Fed owns $1.3 trillion less of securities, of bonds and mortgages. And we've raised rates 500 basis points. And for sure, the 10-year treasury has not gone up 500 basis points. It's gone up by a lot less than that. So it's hard to argue that anything other than economic expectations is the primary driver, yields further out the curve. So it was an experiment worth doing, and a lot of people don't get this. The first QE was really about the plumbing they were trying to make sure that the pipes worked, that markets didn't get gummed up, that things could work smoothly. It wasn't about, at least the first two thirds of it, wasn't about trying to boost economic demand or activity. That came later. But what QE unambiguously does is in times when there's a surge in demand for transactional balances, like back in the agricultural days when they shipped out those boxes, the Fed provides the elasticity to make sure the payments can flow through the system and the dry cleaner in Cedar Rapids can make payroll. That's kind of how it's supposed to work, but it's just not very powerful when compared to the changes in economic outlook. This is why supply rarely, and people talk about Bitcoin and fixed supply. What matters is demand. Demand is really what swings and supply is rarely the issue. That's why QE and QT were powerful. Now this is not my second time through it. So I still have the scars, from 2008, telling people that QE wasn't going to cause inflation. And right. people looked at me like, like I had three eyes. And I remember when I was working at the hedge fund, we lost a client because of that and a couple of prospects. And I remember one guy telling, after having a meeting, I used to get sent to a lot of the meetings because I was good at explaining the economics. And a lot of the guys I worked with were flow traders who were maybe not as articulate and kind of had intuition and good risk management, but couldn't explain things as well to clients. And I remember explaining things to a particular client. And afterwards, I heard from, owner of the hedge fund he came back and he said this is what he said mark he was laughing about it he said mark is really smart but he's just going to get you guys killed with his view on inflation and they ended up not investing with us largely for that reason but anyway i've been through this a couple of times and i just retweeted a tweet today that i sent out back in august near the depth of the bear market august of 2022 saying if we get to all-time highs anytime within the next 12 months or by the end of 2023 we can eliminate for sure the QT effect that so many people fear. And that was kind of peak fear of QT because the market was going down and a lot of people ascribed it to QT. It just doesn't have that kind of effect.
0: Yeah, the thing that I remembered was during 08, when it was going down and being so close to the center of it all, you realized how bad it was. And the reason why I have two parts here. One is I do remember when QE first happened, it did feel like, and maybe the Fed still has this power that when the system seizes up, it really is the only thing that can reliquify the system that it has this power to say, if the Fed didn't step in in a way, I felt like it would have been significantly worse. But then no after, after it happened, this is the second part of that question. I remember something like 40 of the greatest investors of all time. Cause I was early in my investing career. I think I'd been there for about three or four years. All of a sudden we see the world collapse. And then they unleashed this thing, which it felt like it saved everything. It truly felt like it worked, but nobody knew the ramifications. And the smart money, there was this Wall Street Journal article where forty of the top hedge funds said, "We're going to go into inflation because of this because we just unleashed like Pandora's box." So why were you so confident? Yeah, that and it was
1: it was 2010, and I looked at the list, and there were a lot of prominent economists on there and investors and. I remember uh, Cliff Asnes was on there and Jim Chanos and other names that guys on the street would recognize. And I was confident because I knew how it worked. In my time at the IMF, I climbed into so many different central banks and and economies, I, I got to understand the plumbing in a way that most theoretical guys don't and most Wall Street guys don't. They kind of gloss over this stuff and they, they said they had someone summarize Milton Friedman for them and they think they understand monetary policy. This has been an eye-opening experience for a lot of people. but. If your balance sheet is broken, it doesn't matter how much liquidity the Fed provides. You're not going to lend it out. You're going to fix your balance sheet first. That's just common sense. And the mechanics don't work that way anyway. The Fed doesn't give you money and you lend it out. Like I was saying earlier, the way it works is the bank makes a loan and then gives you a deposit and their limits are governed by the regulatory framework. They have capital requirements. They have liquidity requirements. They have leverage requirements. They have to stay within those. But the banks are chartered to issue money create money through deposits. That's how it started in 1863 with the National Banking Act. The Fed came in in 1913 and started to supervise the process because it became clear that the banks weren't very good at it either. The banks aren't going to be taking risk and creating deposits and issuing money if their balance sheets are busted. That, for me, was just the easiest. And listen, everybody talks about the power of interest rates, but we had zero interest rates and we had ZERP and QE for four or five years before people started taking any risk at all because you have to fix your balance sheet first. Maybe this is the right moment to talk about it, but risk appetite is driven much less by the price of money than it is by the other factors. And the two factors really boil it down to something easy to communicate. The two factors are, I call it JP Morgan's famous quote, where he says, nothing so undermines a man's financial judgment as seeing his neighbor get rich. That means once your situation is okay and you see people around you making money, you say, I'm gonna make money too. And then you end up with, a stripper in Florida that owns five homes with Negam mortgages, and the system blows up. So that's how it tends to work. We look around, you know, prices go up a little bit, and we look around, we see other people making money, then we, we take a little bit more risk, and we see prices go up more. This is why, as I said earlier, nothing brings out the buyers that like higher prices. That's really how Wall Street works. Now, from a macro standpoint that matches that is Hyman Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. And it's basically stability breeds instability so it's kind of the same thing everyone starts making money the banks look around merrill lynch has to keep up with goldman sachs and they start underwriting riskier mortgages and everybody starts doing it it's not because they think the fed is going to bail them out or anybody's going to bail them out no one's going to make a loan apart because they think the fed is going to come in at 40 cents in the dollar and bail them out no one wants to take that loss what happens is the optimism and the greed blinds people to downside risk anybody who's been in the room and i have been in these rooms right over my career With the risk committees and how people are making these risk decisions, it's not because they miscalculated the downside, but I think they're protected somehow. Since they're ignoring it, their greed and their competitive pressure leads them to take too much risk. I remember Stanley Mack from Morgan Stanley shortly after the global financial crisis was being interviewed on the Bloomberg Forum. He told the story of a client of his, his good friend and a long-term client called and asked for a loan. And Stanley Mack said, I can't do that. It's just not responsible. It's too much leverage or whatever the reasons were. He said it wasn't the right thing to do. And this was a guy with whom he had a really good relationship long-term, both personally and professionally. And he said, as soon as I hung up that phone, I knew he was going to Merrill Lynch to get that loan. And yeah. he did. So it's really the competitive pressures and being blinded by greed that leads people to take all the risk, not because they think their downside is protected. And Hyman Minsky kind of says, all these things end up when you're stable, people start taking little by little more risk. And then you end up. It ends up bringing instability because in a capitalist system, we take things too far. And we should. That's how we get innovation. We're supposed to be taking risk, but we're supposed to be failing. The Fed's job is not to stop bubbles and keep us from doing that. The Fed's job is to make sure that the guardrails of the regulatory system are in place so that collateral damage onto innocent people doesn't happen. And this is what they did when you were saying earlier, they stepped in and they flooded the system with a settlement liquidity so that everyone's transactions could clear. And so that you and I didn't have to go out in our pajamas at three in the morning, waiting in front of an ATM machine in line, hoping that there'd still be money in there when we got up to the front of the line.
0: That's crazy because I, my feeling back there this. I took money out of the ATM in advance and told my friends and family like this only because I saw it failing and we didn't know how it was going to stop. I'm like, if this actually happens, then there's going to be no money in the system for people to use Because at that point, people just hadn't responded in that way. And it was right for a moment. And then as soon as the Fed showed up, it it all went away. So the
1: Fed's job is to provide the settlement elasticity. And that's what they did. Had they not done it, then the system would have come down and we would have had more cascading deleveraging because people would have been scrambling for cash and there wouldn't have been enough to go around.
0: I want to go into the risk cycle because it's so critical to what I've learned from you is when stock prices are rising and crypto is rising, a common narrative is like, well, Eric, it has to happen because interest rates fall. And when interest rates fall, the discount rate changes. And therefore, these prices go up. And this is why there's so much impact. I know we've talked about it with the impact of rates and the value of assets, but I just want to double click into it, especially on this most recent boom bust cycle we saw that these yeah. assets suddenly had a higher value. Can you walk through why the market was describing them such a higher value?
1: So it's basically one of those cases where correlation is not causation. It started in 2020, you know, this whole long duration asset phenomenon, which since has been busted because we saw what happened over the course of this year with rates going higher and assets kept going higher. There are also some sound financial principles that were at odds with this theory that people seem to gloss over. But the correlation that caught people's eye, where people assumed there was a causal link, was in 2020... We had had our COVID shock and we were recovering from it. And then there were a lot of people who were uncertain about the recovery. Stock prices were starting to go up. People needed to get invested, but they weren't sure if they could trust the economic cycle. So what did they do? They tended to buy what I call secular growers, companies that will grow independent of GDP. So that was Microsoft and it was Apple. And it was also the speculative startup names because the bubble hadn't popped there either. So people saw, and on days where the market felt good about the economic cycle, what do you do when you feel better about the economic cycle? You sell bonds because if economy is good, is improving, you don't want bonds and you want cyclical stocks. And the reverse happened on days when we felt worse about the economic cycle. People would sell cyclical stocks and they would buy bonds, but they would also buy the secular growers. So they saw that the secular growers went up when bond yields came down. And they said, why is that? Because the economy sucks. Why would anybody be doing that? And they were doing it because they had to put risk on the books because they de-risked aggressively after COVID. And they saw prices go up and their bosses were tapping them on the shoulder saying, hey, don't you think you need to add a little bit more risk here? You're lagging your benchmark. That's why they bought these names. But the whole story about the discounting mechanism made sense to a lot of people, so people ran with it. It sounded really clever to say they're long duration assets, but it's kind of bullshit because the more volatile the cash flows, the less the risk-free rate matters. So just to make it really stark, if you have a a high-yield bond that's trading 50 cents on the dollar, do you care what the treasury rate is? No. All you care is whether or not that company makes it, whether it fixes its business, whatever that business is, and gets its revenue going and its profits improving and can get back on track. But that's all that matters. And as a general rule in finance, you're taught that utilities are more sensitive to the risk-free rate because their cash flows are relatively stable and they don't grow very much. The more the growth rate matters or the idiosyncratic risk of the company matters, the less the risk rate matters. It's kind of obvious. But the correlation was there. It was very powerful on a day-to-day basis, and it was really being driven by the toggle on and off between, I like cyclical risk, I don't like cyclical risk, and not by people rationally discounting future cash flows of the ARK fund or of Microsoft or whatever they were ascribing it to.
0: So... That's how you perceive the framework you use for the market is that it's where we are on the risk cycle. Where are we now? Have we started a new cycle?
1: Yes, we have started a new cycle, uh, but shouldn't get too excited about it either because it's not like the old cycle. The old cycles came after these washouts, the ones that people have been looking for this time as well, but didn't materialize. right? So we had a washout, we had a washout, a big wash in 2008, 2000, early 2009, and that left a lot of scope for asset prices to come back. This time, since we didn't fall nearly as far, and we're not probably going to have a recession, we don't know yet, but I think in any event, odds are much less than they were a year ago, kind of a shallower, the amplitude of the cycle is a lot less than previous cycles. So it's not like, I think we're beginning a risk cycle, but it's not going to be as dramatic probably as the other ones. We're probably going to go up with local highs and lows on an upward path. And it will end, as all these cycles do, at some point in the future with people taking too much risk. That's just how the capitalist system works and the financial system works. We're not there yet and it'll probably be a slower path. We do have economic headwinds, not massive, but people do have to refinance in the future years at higher rates. It's not a wall of maturities that people were talking about, but each year, one seventh of the corporate world or whatever the proper number is, has to refinance at a slightly higher rate and that will erode margins and maybe earnings and what have you. But ultimately, people will pay more for the same earnings flow, multiples will increase, And we'll start taking risk and then we'll start adding leverage. And at some point in the future, it will come tumbling down again.
0: So if we're in a risk cycle and prices are more likely to go up than down, it sounds like from listening to you, the real big booms are when the banks create a lot of leverage or there's some sort of big leverage in the system that either we're unaware of or not paying attention to the downside. It doesn't seem like the banks are in bad shape right now. Where no. are you looking towards areas of concern of how you check that the turn of events that it could go the other way?
1: So what's basically happened over the past 15 years or what have you is the household sector and the financial sector and the corporate sector have delevered and turned out their debt and their debt to asset ratio has declined. Despite the charts people send around on Twitter with the highest credit card balances ever, they don't show you what the denominator is. They're lying to you basically households and corporates and financial entities got in, on the whole, much better shape. Obviously, we saw a couple of bankruptcies. We do every cycle. There are always a couple of guys that get caught out over their skis. Either they have to restructure or get recapitalized or go bankrupt. But by and large, much better position. And we've issued a lot more government debt. I'm not worried about government debt like other people are. Who's going to pull our funding? The reason why debt is dangerous is because your liabilities can run. So if someone can pull your funding away from you, then you're forced to sell your assets. This is what happens when people de-risk rapidly. JP Morgan pulled the financing on Bear Stearns one day. They said, we just can't trust you. And then it all came tumbling down. No one can pull the financing on the government. It just can't. So yeah, people can bail on all the treasury bonds, but like I said, the Fed can provide the liquidity that we need as long as we don't have inflation. And we didn't have inflation. This wasn't monetary inflation. We know that there's a limit where inflation can be created. We saw that back in the Civil War. Governments created inflation by printing too much money and buying things with it. But funding its normal operations is not a problem. And the likelihood of a crisis in confidence of treasuries, which people have been calling for days, just seems really, really remote to me because treasuries have become the center of the global financial system. Every single country. This is the good collateral you need on your balance sheet to be properly capitalized, to have high-quality liquid assets. So this is what we use collateral to lend and for borrowing and lending. It's much more collateral-based system. I mean, theoretically, I guess it could happen. I just think the bar is really, 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 really high. It's a little bit like the stories of people diversifying away from the dollar. I'm sure a lot of countries, particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, would like to move away from the dollar to a greater degree. They feel vulnerable because... It constrains their behavior. It could happen to them kind of thing. But what are their choices? There's nothing out there big, liquid, with fungible collateral like the United States. So I just don't buy that whole story of people losing all confidence in treasuries and no one wanting to hold them. So if it's really hard to pull government, finance government debt, I just don't have to worry about it so much. I know people will be screaming out there, pulling out their hair, saying, but our grandchildren have to, okay, fine. But- Someone showed me the other day a magazine cover from 1973 where they said, is the United States going bankrupt? So it's been with us forever. Japan has a much higher debt to GDP ratio than we do, and their collateral isn't central to the global financial system. So I don't think it's that likely. And in any event, it's much better to have the leverage at the government level than it is to have it at the household, corporate, and financial entity level. So that's kind of how I feel about this. So I think we're in a pretty good shape. Our biggest concern is just going to be growth, things, shocks that will come up and Growth will be slower when bad things happen, and hopefully, we'll get some productivity gains along the way. I do believe that the world is disinflationary by nature. Technology makes it such, and that's a good thing. But you never know if productivity is going fast enough to really juice growth, and then we have these headwinds once in a while because things happen. But I just I don't see really great things on the horizon, but I don't see really bad things on the horizon. Like mm. I said, it was kind of a shallow cycle, and we kind of cleaned the books because the books weren't in that bad of a shape to begin with. And now we reset the cycle and we're gonna have a plotting moderate cycle over the next number of years until people forget the mistakes they made last time and start taking risk again irresponsibly and they start issuing SPACs and coins or whatever the next cycle version of those assets will be.
0: One thing I'm curious about is if the institutions have enough risk on, I think Seth Claremont has this quote that a depression is bad, but a depression error mindset is good. And where everybody was worried something was going to break, something was bad, it was going to happen. I've been wondering if people have not enough risk on and that this melt up has got people offsides without having risk this time, as opposed to worrying. Absolutely. In the
1: very short term, I absolutely believe that. I was thinking about the longer multi-year cycle, but in the short Mm -hmm. term, that's very much the case. And you do need some optimism. And even I would argue that when you have the excessive optimism at the end, As long as the guardrails are in place so that a lot of innocent people don't get hit by collateral damage, I think it's great. I mean, look at all the fiber and all the innovation that happened in the cycle way back in the early 2000s, all the technological innovation that comes at peak moments when people are funding tech companies. And the capitalist system encourages risk-taking. A lot of it fails, but they're often second-generation effects. They pick up on the remnants of the previous company and make something good out of it. Or maybe the time isn't right for pets.com. It's right 15 years later but elements of the foundation were already laid. So I think it's not a bad thing as long as it doesn't bring down the whole system. That's why America's great. That's why we do what we do because people pay for outsized risk and they run the risk of failure. This is why the Federal Reserve should not be managing bubbles. Like I said, not that way. They should be managing bubbles by making the infrastructure strong and the regulatory firm robust to minimize the collateral (laughs) damage. But if they were to use interest rates or monetary policy to manage bubbles, it would be bad for capitalism. It's a little bit like I tweeted something out the other day. said Karl Marx was right about capitalism, but he was wrong about socialism. And the new president of Argentina is right about socialism, but uh, capitalism has problems if left unfettered, but it's obviously much better than socialism. But it needs guardrails so that innocent people, the people who aren't taking that risk, who don't stand a chance to benefit in those outsized rewards, don't get hit when the guy taking those risks failed.
0: So when you were talking about the fiscal... Deficit and the amount of debt and the idea that I generally agree with you that I was a like a long-term disinflationary view that technology just increases progress and that you need less labor. So I wasn't as worried about inflation, but I did think, okay, is a hundred trillion too much? Is two hundred trillion too much? Is is there an upper limit? I wasn't going to the probability of it just breaking. I wanted to get into this idea of um modern monetary theory that yeah. without being too wonky. Right now, the general rules are that the Fed controls heating up or cooling off of the economy with the rate of money or the rate of interest rates. And there's this theory that was considered crazy, and then other people seem to adopt it, which was, what if instead of worrying about interest rates, I think those are held flat. And what you control is taxes. So your taxes would be really volatile if the economy was, growing too fast you would just tax everyone a ton of money and that would slow it down and likewise if suddenly the economy went into a recession you just say no taxes this year get back to spending your money it was kind of consumed like a crazy idea and people were laughed at but i'm curious if you have thoughts on mmt
1: well when you frame it like that it does sound a little bit crazy i'll be honest but uh (laughs) most of the people criticizing don't understand it and i'm not an mmt or i have my criticisms of it but understanding it their mechanics are really good. They understand a few things. So they understand that monetary policy is way less powerful than fiscal policy. I wouldn't say don't use monetary policy, but I would say don't rely on it as much as we currently do. I wouldn't say tax the hell out of everybody when times are good and zero out people's tax liabilities when times are bad. I would say build more counter-cyclical stabilizers into the system to attenuate the swings, kind of to lean against the swings of the economic cycle. So The old Fed thinking would lean against the economy. I think we should set up automatic stabilizers in the fiscal system, ideally, to lean against the economic cycles. I think that would be more effective, and in conjunction with monetary policy, would be a better way of managing things. So a lot of people dismiss it and mischaracterize it, or they say, oh, we knew all that. And I don't think that's fair to the MM MMTers. What's difficult with that framework, and I think impossible, is to in a discretionary way, change fiscal policy when times are good and times are bad. When times are in crisis, maybe if there's a Republican president, you can get the Republicans to agree with helping out the economy in a crisis. But there's just no way you're going to get people to raise taxes when times (laughs) are good. Like revenue through whatever form, hiring more IRS agents or whatever it is, people won't want to do it. You can't rely on the Congress to manage the fiscal position in a cyclically productive way. You can't rely on that. That's the first problem. The second problem, of course, is the idea of monetary sovereignty. In a lot of countries, they could never run a system like this because the people would just potentially flee out of their currency. If they thought the government was spending too much or debt was growing too fast or what have you, they would lose confidence in the local currency and they would flee into dollars or probably dollars, maybe euros if it's a Central European country. So that's the concept of monetary sovereignty. But I think the whole MMT discussion It was unfairly dismissed, because if you read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which everybody should read, right, it's a little bit thick sometimes, but it has just a lot of great examples of our cognitive biases. We tend to think cognitive biases are what the other guy has, but we all have them, and that book's great at helping us understand what they are and how they might apply to the world of economics and finance. But one of the heuristics is when you're asked a difficult question, you often answer with an easier question, one that comes more readily to mind. So... One example of this is they asked a bunch of German students, they wanted to ask them two questions to see if they were correlated. One question was, how many dates did you have over the past month? And how happy are you with your life right now? So how happy are you with your life right now? It's kind of a complicated question. It's a difficult one. How many dates you had over the past month is an easy one. So when they asked these questions, asking first, how happy are you with your life right now? And then secondly, how many dates did you have over the past month? There was no correlation whatsoever. However, when you inverted the order of the questions, there was an extremely high correlation because when it came time to ask how happy are you with life right now, they're remembering the easier question, how many dates they had. So there are a lot of examples in the book. I think if I recall right, it was chapter nine. Yeah. Anyway, read it. It's definitely worth it. it goes through these examples where when you ask a difficult question, you answer with the easier one. So they do this when they talk about Keynesian economics and also about MMT because both of them are more aggressive in using fiscal policy to stabilize the economy. A lot of people associate it with big government. So when you're Mm -hmm. asking someone, what do you think of MMT? They're answering, this is what I think of big government. They're not really thinking beyond that. And Haynesian economics has a lot of valuable attributes. It's not perfect like any framework, but if there's anything we should have learned over the past 15 years, is that fiscal policy wields the power. They're the ones that can bring the economy that can fill the hole in aggregate demand when the economy takes a shock, either because it's COVID or because all the banks levered up in crazy fashion and it had to delever really, really fast. In fact, one of the lessons from the global financial crisis cycle was fiscal policy wasn't aggressive enough. We didn't fill the hole enough. Now they're debating whether or not we filled the hole too much this last time. I actually think if you look at the outcome we've had, it wasn't that bad. When inflation was running at 9%, a lot of people attribute it primarily to policy. But now we see the way inflation has come down and the way it's come down all over the world, more or less simultaneously. I think they realize it was primarily the COVID shock and secondarily fiscal. But if you do the inflation math just really quickly, we had 4% inflation in 2021. We had 8% inflation in 2022. We're going to come in somewhere between three and four this year. Let's just use four to make it easy. The inflation target of the Fed was 2%. So that means two, six, and two, was the excess inflation we had in each year. Two, six, and two adds up to 10. If you think that 75% of inflation came from the COVID shock, which I think is a reasonable estimate given what we've recently seen, that means we had 2.5% of excess inflation over the past three years from excessive policy. I think if it's 2.5% spread over three years in exchange for 3% unemployment, When all the other countries that were hit by the shock ended up with higher unemployment, it's hard to call fiscal policy egregiously excessive.
0: Yeah, and yet someone will still blame the Fed and the fiscal policy on monetary and fiscal. Well, a lot of it it
1: gets back to the question I was saying earlier, (laughs) that you asked a question about how how economic policy is, and they're answering, I don't like to pay taxes. They're answering with the easier question, and that's just human nature. That's why I brought up the counterman quote.
0: When we both talked about being disinflationary. That's come from two sectors that have grown rapidly, which is finance and tech. But whether asset prices have gone up because of the Fed or asset prices go up because of the risk cycle, independent of what you believe, asset prices have gone up and they've created quite a bit of income inequality. And it seemed to me like that was a trend that was bound to continue. I'm curious what you think about the idea of asset price inflation and income inequality.
1: So I think the wealth effect has been overstated, generally. It's always been my proposition. And again, when you're bearish and the market goes up, you want to attribute it to these kinds of things. A great example is 2022. Asset prices came down hard. We didn't even see a blip in demand. Now, you can argue that fiscal policy was strong and monetary policy was accommodative, but we should have seen a blip from that. And we didn't. So I think there's a wealth effect, but I just think it's a lot smaller than people tend to think. I've always thought, as I said, uh, that it's smaller than everyone else thinks. And I was still surprised by how small it was in 2022. I expected to see that more of a monetary tightening effect on demand from asset prices falling. I think that's a testament to it. The other thing is income inequality kind of led to the wealth equality in some respects, because if you're continuing to have income inequality where all of the income accrues to a small percentage of people, well, they have to invest that money and their assets are going to grow. Stock markets tend to go up over time and they make more money. And in my mind, the way the income inequality started was not primarily about policies over the past 30 years that favored capital over labor, even though they did, and that made things worse, it was not primarily that. And it was primarily a simple factor, which you touched on a second ago, that growth over the past 30 years has been driven by two primary sectors, finance and technology. These sectors have principles a lot of other sectors don't have, and that's increasing returns to scale. So I'm going to make you a loan of $100 million or a loan of $10 million. I'm going to do the same due diligence, but I make a lot more money if I lend you $100 million. So that global financialization becomes a very scalable business. A lot of money accrues to Goldman Sachs partners or whoever you want to point at. That was basically until 2008, the 90s and the 2000s. That was the world that we definitely lived in. Technology has the same phenomenon because you know, Mark Zuckerberg, just copy zeros and ones, and with a very small team of people, relatively speaking, you can make a lot of money fast. Technology is massively scalable quickly. I also didn't include hedge funds, but hedge funds on the finance side is another thing that's massively scalable. A lot of people accrued a lot of wealth through those. Technology and finance were the engines of growth, and they both produce a lot of money accruing to an unusually small amount of people. It's not like when you set up a new factory for your widgets and you have to go, do we put it in Topeka or Wichita, and we got to hire the capital and then we got to hire the labor. It's not like that. It's just really, really easy to scale finance and technology up. So Mark Zuckerberg ends up with a lot of money and he's got to invest it somewhere. So he puts it in the stock market, he puts it in bonds. I think a lot of it is behind the structural shortage in risk-free assets. Despite all the treasury issuance that people cry out and sovereign bond issuance around the planet, there's definitely an inelastic price insensitive demand for risk-free assets. Maybe not in times of panic, or maybe more in times of panic, depending on the type of panic, but it's definitely there. And I think a lot of it is because the people to whom all this wealth is accrued, they have a lot of money to invest. So if you take the GDP pie, or the global world income pie, and it is what it is, and you have a larger share accruing to a smaller number of people who have a very low marginal propensity to consume, you're going to be increasing for a given level of world income. The demand for financial assets and, in particular, risk free assets, because they don't need their get rich money. They need it to be get rich money. They need it to be stay rich money. So they're going to buy a, a lot of risk free assets. And, and then, as they say, assets up over time, or you know, equities at least, and the wealth inequality fed by the income inequality just feeds on itself. So I think a lot of it is that. The system that favors capital over labor does make it worse. So if you look at the countries like the US, Australia, the UK, that tend to have those kinds of mindsets, you can see the income inequality and wealth inequality tend to be worse than the countries that don't. But it's been a global phenomenon that we've seen is across countries, wealth is converging. That is to say, a lot of the countries like China and India are kind of catching up. But within countries, the gap between the wealthy and the poor tends to increase.
0: All right, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. And usually we ask people about where we are on the cycle, but you've already answered that over the past uh, hour and a half. So I've appreciated it. So for you, I'll give you a special question. What is your favorite sector in this new cycle?
1: So I have a lot of belief in my ability to be wrong. So I'm always real careful about this kind of stuff. I'm a little bit like the Fed, I'm data dependent and I have big ideas about what the market's gonna do and then find out the market's not gonna do it. But right now I have a fairly strong view and I have had this for some time. Basically it starts with a structural shortage in housing and anybody who reads Behavioral Macro in my Twitter feed knows exactly. You can go back and, ex- and see how my thinking over time on this. We have a structural shortage in housing that stems from the PTSD of the home builders after the financial crisis. They got so far of the skis and they came so close to bankruptcy that they just didn't want to go there again. So we have the combination of them building too little and the millennials coming into their prime household formation years. And a lot of people wanted to blame it on the Fed and other things. But we've seen now the Fed has gone away in that sense and home prices have held up. And people say, well, that's just because they withheld supply, no one's selling. But it also means no one's buying. In the secondary market, supply has to equal demand. And when the supply comes back, the demand is also going to come back. And I would argue the demand. The risk is that the demand comes back sooner, because the strike price on where people refinance could refinance the houses that might unleash supply, get them to leave one house and get another one, is in the low fours. And I think you said last time we spoke that you saw something that said it was in the high threes, but whatever, it's the price is well below where we are today. So, I'm bullish on the sector because people have for one reason or another thought it was going to get crushed, looking in the rearview mirror with a PTSD because it got crushed last time and keep predicting a bubble that doesn't happen. Now, I think people have realized with the rally that we've just had, the massive rally since the end of October, that okay, the sector's not going to crash. But I don't think they appreciate the potential for earnings growth just look at their peak earnings and look at where we are now and look at the playing field that these guys face. They basically have meant on tap and fat margins. And now that the mortgage rates have come down 150 basis points, they don't have to spend as much of those healthy margins on buying down the interest rates to get people in houses. So mm-hmm. they're in really in the catbird seat. And I think if you go back and look at the previous earning peaks in the last couple of years, I think they can exceed those. And that's a 30% plus growth rate in earnings. Just take 30% growth for earnings and you look at what their multiples are right now, the average multiple for the sector after this massive rally we just had is eight. And under normal circumstances, it would be probably something closer to 11, maybe 12. If you have a multiple re-rating from eight to 11 and you have earnings growing by 30%, do the math. Potentially (laughs) massive upside from here. Now, a little bit like in July, based on the technical pattern, it seemed like there was some exhaustion and said on the behavioral macro feed, I said, okay, we got a top now for the foreseeable future in home builders. I did not know what was going to come. They were going to fall nearly as much as they did, but I saw that there was a top. I mm-hmm. see now that we have a lighter top, more of an intermediate turn top, probably because of this massive run, we have to digest those gains. So you kind of wouldn't want to jump in right now, whole hog. You'd want to wait until you get some kind of pullback or consolidation pattern before getting in. But people realize that I think now. The consensus view is that they're not going to crash the way people expected and that's why we've rallied but they don't realize how massive the earnings potential and uh, if you take that together with the re rating of multiples which seems to be starting next year looks really good for them
0: awesome mark i always enjoy talking to you thank you for the time today
1: appreciate it eric thanks for having me
0: on if you enjoyed this episode check out joincolossus.com there you will find every episode of this podcast along with transcripts our weekly newsletter and resources to continue your learning.